0: It is a real delight to welcome everyone here today. Um, I'm Heather Hamilton, I'm executive director of Elevate Children Funders Group. Today's lineup of six superb speakers, oh, sorry, speakers, launches the first in a six session series of webinars exploring how we as child serving funders can quite practically shift power in philanthropy in order to improve outcomes for children and youth. And it's that last bit of the sentence that's really important here, that's really crucial. We recognize that we are here because we want better outcomes for children youth around the world, particularly the most marginalized and vulnerable. The recent calls within philanthropy for shifting power have made a really strong case for shifting power to communities, particularly marginalized groups who are most affected by the policies and problems we're trying to solve as a moral and ethical necessity. We need to do it because it's the right thing to do. But as Elevate Children members explored this past spring while developing our new theory of change, which was part of our new strategy, there are critical shifts that have to happen within philanthropy itself if we want to achieve our ultimate goal of a world in which all children can thrive and exercise their rights. Our members resoundingly agreed that if we wanna achieve this big goal, all resource holders need to better understand and practice power shifting approaches within their own philanthropy. And we heard that it's not just the right thing to do, but it's the smart thing to do, something we have to do if we wanna succeed. And that our members wanted support in exploring the practicalities of how to do it. So I'm really thrilled about this series and thrilled to be here today um, welcoming you to this series that we developed with Firelight, the International Education Funders Group, and the Children, Youth and Family Funders Roundtable. I'd also like to take a moment to thank and acknowledge my ECFG colleagues, Sheila Baller and Zoe Trout, who really led from our side. Thank you both and sincere thanks also to the whole team of folks across the hosting organizations and the speakers who have so generously given of their time today to lead us in this important learning journey. So over to you, Joe.
1: Thanks so much, Heather. Um, Heather's put it so well. I don't have a huge amount to add other than to welcome you all here. I'm Joe, Director programs with the International Education Funders Group. Um, I'm here with the IFG, um, along with my colleague, Gordana. Perhaps she can she can wave, um, I'm sure many of you know her. Um, and I just want to add, we're really excited about this series. We know we've been hearing from members for over a year that this is a really pressing and important topic. We're really excited to grapple with the conversations, to learn from each other. Um, and I think one of the things that for us was particularly um, sort of interesting about this series is the the connections that we're making um, with child protection um, and child rights issues, because we know we've been hearing about all of these intersectoral challenges. We know from many of our members how important this is, and there's a big focus right now on holistic learning outcomes from the education sector. So to actually grapple with these um, in a series where we've come together with our sister networks is is really exciting for us, and we're looking forward to the journey over the next six weeks, um, and looking forward to learning from you all. And I'm gonna pass over to Amy,
2: Thanks, Joe. Hey, everybody. This is Amy Nagel. I am director of the Children, Youth, and Family Funders Roundtable, and we're just so pleased to be part of this series. Our um, funder affinity group has since Deception really thought about this kind of cross-section of the issues that really bind children using family funders. Sometimes we have to be in our silo, but it is helpful to be looking across sectors. sector So we're glad to be at a, a, a table of, of other like-minded folks and particularly excited to be thinking um, across Continence with you all about how the strategies that you all have been funding and employing in other places can be explored and um, and developed. uh, Amongst our US funders so we're so happy to be among you and a special hello to all the roundtable members out there i'm really glad you're among us and excited to be on this learning journey with you, Um, I will pass it over to Nina. Thank you, thank you, Amy.
3: I'm Nina Blackwell. I'm the executive director of Firelight, which is a donor, a collaborative donor fund um, that is made possible by uh, large donors, small donors, uh, family foundations and others um, that makes grants uh, in service of community-driven systems change in Southern and Eastern Africa for children and youth. And I wanted to say, sort of echo what, uh, uh everyone has already said, but it's, it's true, we are really honored and excited that you're all here. It's not an insignificant commitment that you're making. We deeply appreciate it and we want to support you throughout it. Uh, and that goes for all of us here, so please don't ever hesitate. Um, if support is what you need in this process, we are here for you. I wanna start by sharing a few important thoughts um, that actually we'd love you to remember as we move through the series. This, um, This is an important journey for everyone who has access to philanthropic capital or who influences the mechanisms of global development. Your choices, your everyday actions are already based on a desire to help or be in solidarity with others. And the shifting of power in your work is an extension of that. It might be said that there's no right or wrong in philanthropy, Um, after all, we are giving, but we need to understand that there can be harm in our decisions and our actions, no matter how helpful we think we are being, and while there can be harm, we can actively address it and we can do something about it. We will not be able to address it all, even in six weeks, Um, so please do see this as an introduction each one of the speakers and presenters throughout the six weeks has offered to make themselves available to you. If you would like more information, a deeper dive, lessons learned, and we'll provide their contact details, don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, um, we are all learning. You do not have to be perfect, uh, but there are many people who are here and many others who are ready to help you along the way, not least of whom are the communities that you seek to support every day in your work. Before I go too much further, uh, in the spirit of acknowledging power, I wanna pause um, to acknowledge that I'm coming to you today from Silicon Valley, California, the Aboriginal homeland of the Muwekma Ohlone tribe. I wanna pay my respects to uh, their original claim on this land and to the loss they suffered when it was taken. I'm going to ask a question which will have an infuriating answer. I am sorry. The question is, what does it mean to shift power? The infuriating part is that I'm not the best person to tell you. As you will hear over the next six weeks, the people who are best placed to give you that answer are the people or communities that you seek to support. But uh, shifting power does mean a few things. It means beginning everything we do with an acknowledgement, exploration and understanding of how power manifests itself around the world and how power largely centralizes itself in the global North, especially where global development is concerned. It means acknowledging and fighting the well-meaning but neo-colonial tendencies and systems of global development, which sadly ignore or patronize locally rooted expertise or voices or realities. It means recognizing that global development today does not always take into account intersectionality, colonial harms or institutional racism. It means we need to acknowledge that traditional definitions of neutrality are actually not neutral at all. It also means that we may not be the best people to identify problems, to suggest solutions or decide what success should look like. In the reverse, shifting power means that everything we do should acknowledge, honour and fund the reality and the extraordinary power and capacity of the people we want to support. It means hearing what people want to do rather than just deciding what we want them to do. It means opening up processes and practices that truly support local action and agency and honouring those as important to long-term change and to our own internal needs. It means means acknowledging that people we want to support may actually not need our help, they need our allyship. Um, The subheading um, of this series um, involves community-driven systems change, as Heather um, uh, mentioned. So I'd lastly like to clarify some of these terms. Community is the first term that I think we need to clarify. Because when we speak of community, many people, many, all of us may have different pictures in our minds, maybe a rural village, a tribe, a caste, an ethnicity, or a unit that is sort of small or micro, maybe even remote or inaccessible. But actually, we're speaking in a broad sense about people with common interests, perhaps living in a, lar- in a particular area, or a group of people with common characteristics or interests living within a larger society or a body of people having a common history or a common social or economic or political interest, or a group that's linked by a common policy. The second term to clarify is community driven. This term is critical because it is the essence of what shifting power really means. And it's important because many people claim it without validity. Unfortunately, today, uh, many people might call their work community-based, but in truth, their work is not community-driven. Many organisations identify as community-based, but they are not community-driven. Community-driven means explored, decided, centered around, and controlled by those in the community. And finally, um, I think we should clarify systems change. This idea calls on us to look beyond perceptions that are often associated with communities, such as small grants, capacity building projects, programs, interventions. It calls on us to understand and honour the role that communities, large or small, might want to have in shifting their own systems, not conforming to externally predetermined goals, not running short-term programs, but influencing the systems in which they live for longer lasting outcomes. Over the next six weeks, we hope to explore how you can shift power by supporting community-driven systems change. We hope to show you that it's not impossible even within long-established philanthropic institutions. And most importantly for us here, we hope to show you how important and effective shifting power is for better outcomes for children and youth. And as Heather said, it is this last point that we want to actually make first. The shifting power and centering communities in our grant making is absolutely critical for better outcomes for children and youth. It is so much more than just a good thing to do. It both promises and yields better lasting systems for children, youth and their families around the world. Today, we're honored to have four different experts speak about the importance of shifting power and centering community in four different areas of challenge and opportunity for children and youth. Dr. Beatrice Matafwali will discuss how she has seen the contrast in lasting outcomes between programs in early childhood and education that involve communities and families from the beginning versus those who are imported from the outside. Ghazal Keshavazian will speak about why centering children, youth and community is essential in the future of the care sector and the prevention of child separation. Zanelli Sibanda will share her experience on how much more effective and lasting outcomes can be for adolescent girls when they are centred in programmes and actions that will seek to support them. And Mike Wessels will speak on why centering community, children and youth is essential to realising effective child protection systems. Following all our presentations, um, we'll have an open question session, so please do make note of your questions uh, while speakers are speaking, or put them in the chat, and we'll endeavour to get them to all of them at the question uh, session at the end. So without further ado, I will open the floor to Zanele
4: Sibanda. Thank you so much, Zanele. Thank you, Nina. And thank you to all of you for the invitation to come into this space and share um, some of my experiences and work with adolescent girls. Um, really over years and continuing to learn because one thing that I would definitely say is that this is a process of learning because it does fundamentally challenge what we believe about change and how change happens. So one of the things I'd like to say, just to add to Nina's question of what does it mean to shift power is that I would add that we need to not limit our thinking about that shift in power to only thinking about resources. I think shifting power also involves who has power and control, not only over resources, but over knowledge, over narrative and over identity. So there's a range of ways that that power can be shifted within our work and it doesn't mean we get to do it all at once. Often we can take that process and learn over time. And for me, I think there are three distinct uh, areas where I see the results of lasting change um, as a result of shifting power. The first is really around listening, right? We often... As funders send out an RFP and within six weeks partners or organizations working on the ground need to submit an RFP. And so one of the ways that I've seen uh, a way of shifting power is actually starting by partnering with organizations, giving them six months to actually listen to the adolescent girls um, who were in a sense the people the participants of the program. And several things happened in that process. One, girls were very surprised that they were being listened to. Two, they found their voice and power to influence how the problem is defined, but also to recognize the ways that they were already resisting, and this was a program that was focused on violence against girls, that they were not just always just victims. They themselves had already, even before the program began, some agency in which they were resisting and finding small, meaningful strategies for which they found ways to protect for themselves. So by By sharing power with girls to both define the problem, but also to understand well, what did girls already have at their disposal within their agency, um, the program was able to then bring in girls into the process of also defining the program. And as a result, when we started to see the implementation of the program, girls took a different role. They were no longer just participants in the program, they were actually proactive in not only. Um, taking action around these issues but also engaging other girls and so I think that begins to be the first thing is that in shifting power and sharing power with girls they get to define the problem but they get to also take a different role in the implementation of the program and that that role shifts not only during the program but beyond that. The second area I would say is Um, By engaging girls in beyond that definition of the problem phase um, is really in the approach in how we engage girls is also been a really transformational process so that girls actually start to fully own, realize both the power within, what they have as agency, but also power with other girls and how they can actually drive change. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking of a program in India where what we saw was over time, that girls actually took an active role in addressing things like increasing literacy in their community, in eliminating um, disease, but also in increasing Uh, vaccination uh, against polio from 20% to 60%. So they started to not only see themselves as, oh, something is being done to me, but what is it that I can do in order to drive change? So that ownership um, becomes a real long-term driver of change rather than something that girls are doing or participating in in a short-term within a program. And then the third way that I've seen this transformational change happen when you shift power to girls was when girls are actually given the decision or the power to decide where resources are used and how. And here again, what we saw is not only that power in deciding and defining the problem, in shaping the solution, but in actually increasing their own voice in order to look at, speak into spaces where girls often don't have a voice within their community, in the community having a different perception of what girls are capable of and what girls can do. But we also saw girls making decisions about the access to the platforms, to the resources, to the tools that they were um, given access to and decision-making power over in terms of challenging the systems that actually often hold them back and uh, prevent them having access and agency um, over their own lives. We saw an increase in the confidence that girls have. We saw an increase in girls making choices about their own future. For example, girls being married saying, no, I don't want to get married and knowing who to bring in to speak to their parents about saying, I respect that, I will get married, but now is not the time. And we actually saw parents actually accepting um, and delaying marriage. We also saw, as I said, community shifting their perception of girls and understanding that, wow, these girls actually have much more to bring to contribute to um, be that they are able to do rather than seeing them as just either victims or people who were just something was happening to. Um, and then finally, as I said, also seeing girls have voice and visibility in spaces where typically they did not have um, even access. Uh, into those spaces. And so all of this change again becomes transformational because some aspect of power has been shifted either in part two girls by sharing power with or wholly over two girls by not only Recognizing the power that they have and the agency that they have, but also cultivating power with other girls. And I'll stop there, Nina, and see if um, there's anything that you would want to ask or we pass on to the next speaker.
3: Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, And again, I think that we are. Um, outlining where we see some of the extraordinary um, sort of changes that happen within not only individual protagonists but within systems and long-term outcomes. And as you mentioned, outcomes we didn't perhaps even necessarily believe or see that might be um, relevant or resulting um, in the first place. So thank you. Um, I will actually now, thank you, Izanele. Um, I will now turn actually to Dr. Beatrice Matafuali, um, who's going to just again, as we, um, as Anele did, give us a, a high level pers- perspective on what the difference is when we see programs in early childhood and education that come from outside and come with predetermined ideas versus those that come uh, from within communities. So I'll turn it over to you. Thank you, Beatrice.
5: Uh, Thank you, Nina, uh, for the opportunity to to be part of um, uh, this panel discussion. Um, Sincerely appreciate. Um, Like you have said, I'm going to respond to the question uh, on the importance of shifting power to the community from the early childhood perspective. So I'll look at it from two different dimensions. Uh, from the dimension of donor-driven initiatives and those that are community-driven. First of all, shifting power to to the communities um, entails putting the communities on the driving seat uh, uh, for them to define or rather to determine their own destinies and also their their pathway um, in terms of the desirable outcomes from the initiative. Unlike on the other approach where initiatives are uh, project driven or donor driven, the approach has usually or traditionally been top down approach uh, where the donors identify uh, problems. Uh, They they already have maybe sometimes even initiatives in place and um, they are the ones who have uh, prioritized even um, the, the expected outcomes from the intervention when the project or program is implemented uh, using such an approach, um, the communities do not uh, take an active role in the implementation, but rather they look at the initiative as an outside initiative and they usually associate such an initiative to the donor. Uh, Let me say if the donor is Firelight Foundation, uh, sorry Nina to put you on the spotlight, um, they will be referring to the program as This is the Firelight uh, uh, Foundation project. And yet the initiative is aimed at empowering or improving child development outcomes within their respective communities. But because of the approach uh, taken in the implementation process, the program will remain as an outside um, kind of approach uh, to the people. It uh, uh, it, it does not uh, really embrace uh, the ideas from the people, And and sometimes it does not even respond to the context in which that program is being implemented. Um, I have had an opportunity of um, working with Firelight as as a consultant um, for quite some time now. And um, their approach has been community-driven. And uh, so I'll I'll be sharing experiences uh, from what I've seen uh, on the ground. I've been supporting the initiatives in Tanzania, Zambia, and Malawi. Um, so, this community driven approach uh, shifts powers uh, to the communities themselves and um, the communities are empowered in, in surfacing the problems. Uh, they are able to surface the problems that they are facing in the, in the area of early childhood development. They prioritize the problems and um, they are part and parcel of the process in identifying solutions. Uh, so, what are some of the benefits uh, in, in, in such an approach? there's ownership uh, from the very beginning. Uh, The community celebrates uh, being part and parcel of the process and um, they they feel so treasured and respected. And uh, by by so doing, um, they they take leadership and they're accountable and it's it's an important factor that contributes uh, to program sustainability. What have we learned, uh, for example, from the time uh, uh, we started, and when I say we, it's uh, the support I give to Firelight Initiatives. Um, we have seen um, communities uh, uh, you know, having that sense of empowerment, uh, because they feel you know, they, are, they are part and parcel of, of the initiative. And uh, most importantly, we have created an opportunity for them to share indigenous knowledge and practices. Um, many times early childhood interventions uh, are driven uh, using evidence-based practice and uh, some of the, the data that we have at the moment like on the, on the continent is generated from the outside uh, um, uh, continent and some of it is difficult to contextualize it uh, with, within the, uh, the local communities. So what happens here when I am now approaching the communities um, from the technical side uh, uh, of, of the intervention. I need to celebrate the indigenous knowledge and practices of the respective communities because that's the entry point in, in uh, uh, the, the communities reclaiming uh, you know, the intervention and uh, also um, you know, sharing that ownership from the inception of the, the initiative. So you, if I want, let's, let me say I want to uh, support communities in in, um, responsive caregiving, I need to appreciate that communities already know they they have been doing this uh, from uh, time immemorial. Uh, They they have their own uh, child rearing practices. And so I I, I usually throw a question to them to say, what are your footprints in child child development? So that gives an opportunity for them to surface indigenous knowledge and practices. So they share their experiences, Uh, they share some of the facilitators and some of the barriers that they have seen within their communities. It's only at that point that I will be able to integrate uh, evidence-based knowledge by celebrating what they already know. Uh, So I do not go into the communities from the deficit point of view, but rather I tell communities, we are here to learn. We are beginning from the known to the no, not from the unknown, like they don't know anything. I'm the one who is coming with knowledge and what, because they already have this knowledge. Um, so for me, my role would be just to, to connect on how, for example, when the, the mother is talking to the child, how does that stimulate child development? And um, I, I think uh, by so doing, it helps them appreciate that whatever activity they do, the day-to-day activities, that is what contributes to child outcomes. And um, such an approach um, has the potential for sustainability because if you integrate the program in what the communities are already doing, they, they, it's an integral part of their day to day activities. So they will not see it like, you no, know, uh, at this hour I'm coming to visit you and I should find you waiting so that you can play with your child. They know already that they have been doing this uh, as part of their day to day activities. Um, the other uh, important aspect I've seen from this is integrating the local voices. Uh, this is uh, transformational. Just borrowing, uh, uh, you know, the words from Zanelli, is transformational in the sense that it 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 helps um, you know communities to to be active participants from the time they are writing the proposal, at the time of implementation, and at the time of evaluation, because. Usually when the program is top down, uh, I think uh, communities become quite uncomfortable at evaluation because they don't know whether what they were doing was the correct thing. So when they see a person coming to monitor, they see that person like they're are, they captains they're patronizing them. But if they've been part and parcel of the process, uh, they, they want to, uh, to have a reflection uh, kind of uh, um, process where they can, they can um, drive lessons from the implementation process and inform, you know, improvement uh, for you know for uh, for child outcomes. And um, the other uh, benefit that uh, I can share is, you know, early childhood is um, multifaceted. It's it requires, uh, you know, participation of various stakeholders and. Uh, sometimes it becomes difficult for communities to integrate or rather to appreciate the role of other stakeholders in the ECD space. But when the intervention is community-driven, you you take people back into their day-to-day practice. Where do they access services when it comes to child development? They they will locate uh, respective government ministries. They will be able to locate within the communities, the other like-mandated organizations that can they can collaborate with uh, to to leverage on the interventions. So it brings into context uh, the system thinking approach, uh, which um, allows for implementation of an integrated uh, early childhood, even when the funds are not really um, enough, uh, because they are able to uh, to create synergies and to leverage on the existing platforms uh, within their respective communities. Uh, so. I think those are some of my my reflections on um, the importance of uh, shifting power. Uh, It's it's about ownership, it's about accountability. And the other thing I would want to mention is how uh, this approach has brought traditional leaders on board in in driving driving the process of uh, early childhood development. And uh, these are custodians of their communities. And so, if you go there with uh, foreign ideas, sometimes these ideas can conflict uh, with, uh, you know, their cultural beliefs and values. But if you bring them on board uh, from from the inception, you know, the traditional leaders have been very supportive in, in informing, uh, you know, the the practices from the indigenous knowledge point of view but some of them have actually been uh, available even to offer pieces of land uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to support the initiatives. So it's about providing that opportunity, creating a platform where every member, especially community members feel appreciated and celebrating their knowledge. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Beatrice, so appreciated. Um, And just to acknowledge that um, we did not always um, uh, engage communities from the beginning in their own early childhood outcomes. And we um, have shared a little bit of a pre-reading uh, if you'd like to read um, about what happened when, uh, when support was not, um, when it was imposed uh, largely from the outside. So thank you, Beatrice. Ghazal, I'd love to turn to you. Um, You might not need so much of an introduction to all the people on this call, so I will let you take it away.
6: Um, Thank you, Nina, and thank you to all the organizers. Um, It's lovely to be back um, with the funder community and see a lot of familiar names and faces. Um, Before I start, I do wanna acknowledge that, you know, these conversations are very difficult. I mean, I think this is, whether it's about shifting power, decolonizing aid, localization, I do see all of this as one conversation in many respects. And um, you know, these conversations, in many respects, we have to sit with our discomfort, which is not an easy thing. So I just want to kind of acknowledge that at the start. Um, I want to just focus on kind of on two dimensions. You know, you know, very much this, you know, echoes what Beatrice and Zanelli were talking about. But you know, two the two dimensions in respect to kind of Child protection specifically around care. You know, one is looking at where the power currently sits, looking at the ecosystem. And the second is around programming. Um, and, you know, and I would argue right now within the care space, child protection, you know, we have we we haven't that shifted the power yet. You know, the power is very much concentrated um, within the northern, western, kind of global north um, donors, you know primarily bilateral, multilateral donors, foundations. Um, The funding then goes down to UN agencies, um, primarily UNICEF and a small group of international NGOs. Um, The funding tends to be restricted, it's not flexible. um, And within that, it makes it very difficult for local organizations, children and communities to be at the center of the decision-making you know, the idea around a lot of this funding, um, and even within some of this programming that we know trickle down to the local community. And as we know, from trickle down economics, it doesn't necessarily work. Um, You know, we do we are seeing some really interesting examples within the child protection space around these funds, which is centering, you know, children and families such as, you know, Child Rights Innovation Fund. Child Rights um, Violence Prevention Fund, but you know, as they would say, it's a really, it's a drop in a bucket in terms of the funding that allows for this flexibility. flexibility, um, Within this kind of ecosystem that's concentrated within these larger donors and these INGOs, UNICEF, there are clear power relations and there are clear forms of hierarchy. Um, And this profound power imbalances has created a dynamic which which considers um, you know the outsiders are are known are perceived to know what's best for the local communities and the local communities are just beneficiaries even as topics as sensitive and is so locally conceptual as caring for your own child family welfare child protection these are deeply as Beatrice noted these are deeply personal contextual issues um, and you know and within this kind of ecosystem, as we look at programming, um, programming design and implementation is another reflection of the power imbalances, which can ultimately lead to poor children and family outcomes. And what we're seeing, and you see this across, you know, child protection, but, you know, specifically around children's care issues, um, programming has tended to impose or transport or, you know, Um, these Western kind of Anglo-Saxon northern child protection systems, systems of social work, systems of care. These are rooted in very much more individualistic notions of caregiving with a strong role of the state. And this comes in direct conflict with established collectivist systems. and you know, established notions of caregiving, the indigenous which Beatrice um, noted. Um, and you know this varies from context to context. You know how a family raises their child is very different from one community to the next community in one even in one city. Um, and within you know the children's space, the child care space, the tendency has been to kind of transport, replicate, export these Anglo-Saxon models of child welfare that are really rooted in structural racism, colonial legacies to other areas of the world. I mean, I know there are many people on the call today that come from the U.S. Um, and I think we all you know, I, I live in New York. I can I see in a daily basis that the child welfare system has failed the vast majority of the population. We saw this during COVID times. We saw it well before COVID times. Um, and, you know, it's well documented within the US and you see this in the UK, you see this in Australia, you see this in other parts of the global North that how racist these child protection systems and systems of care in the treatment of black and brown children. You know, in terms of kind of the case management systems in terms of foster care, all of these different kind of models that we've kind of taken and transported to other parts of the world. And these models of care are further layered on existing colonial structures of international development, humanitarian aid, um, systems that are imposed from the outside with an outsider's lens. Um, in addition, kind of this programming tends to take a very simplistic paternalistic um, approach to children and families. So children and families, you know, these vulnerable children and families from the quote-unquote global south. Need to be saved, protected, and rescued. Um, and by doing that, we're pushing them away further and further from their communities and cultures and social norms. Um, and it's a very, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, the vast majority of the world, you know, takes this very collectivist approach to caregiving. And this, you know, butts heads with this. And this kind of individualistic approach, you know, looking at the individual child. Also, you know, goes against, you know, as, as you know, in the introduction, a number of you mentioned this kind of focus around more holistic and intersectional approach. I know there's a number of donors on the call, from education, from all different, um, you know, um, topic areas when it comes to children, but this programming tends to take this very siloed approach where you don't look at the, the range of problems that children and families face, whether it's poverty healthcare, unemployment, intergenerational, intergenerational trauma. Um, so these programming doesn't address the root causes. And at the end of the day, the outcomes for children and family are weaker. Um, and so you know ultimately, you know, the funding structures, the the you know, the mechanisms, the institutions that are in place that are implementing this programming, the programming that is transported to these countries, it's a very Northern elite, and you can say quite, quote unquote white, top-down solution-oriented ecosystem that's divorced from the socioeconomic political realities, which the organizations are um, situated in. And at the end of the day, the children Families, parents, community, community leaders are not at the center of the decision making. They're brought in at the tail end or the middle in terms of deciding what is needed for their own communities and families. Um, they're disconnected from the levels of power. They're disconnected from the, you know, there's very little agency, you know, for children, it's issues around age. Um, but there's also marginalizing factors such as ethnicity, class, race, and gender identity. Um, And I just want to give one example of how this kind of programming kind of how it has this real deep rooted impact on children. You know, as we're seeing what's happening in Afghanistan right now with this, you know, what we'll see, unfortunately, um, mass exodus, mass population movement, um, mostly to the neighboring countries, but we will eventually see to Europe, America. And I've been thinking back to some of the conversations I was having, um, you know, 2016, 2017, 2018, when I was working on issues around children on a move, when there was this kind of migration movement to Europe. And at the time, a lot of these migration organizations, you know, they were focused on migration. They didn't have the child care background, they didn't have child protection background, but they increasingly were seeing a number of unaccompanied minors children, adolescents coming into Europe on their own, but they are at a loss, you know, in terms of what to do. So they turned to the donors, bilateral donors, foundations, large INGOs, UN agencies, you know, asking them, you know, what do we do with these young people that have come into our countries? And so, you know, they recommended not to put these kids in institutions, which is of course great, but you know, they were recommending putting kids in foster care and back in i think it was 2018 2019 i was speaking to a group of researchers they were commissioned by foundations that had been funding this programming you know during the peak migration period to look at kind of what the outcome was in terms of the programming and what they had found you know looking at you know across different countries germany greece a number of different countries in europe you know what these organizations did based on the recommendations, based on the conversations, based on what donors had told them, put these kids in foster care. And what had happened was that, what they saw was that a number of these placements broke down. And as these researchers spoke to the children and young people, they said, no one spoke to us. No one came to us and said, what do you want? Why did you come to Germany? Why did you leave? your country, why did you leave your families to come to this country? Not one person spoke to us. We already had a family. We left because we wanted to have an education. We wanted to have employment. We didn't want to be put in a family. And so these placements broke down. I mean, if they had spoken to the young people, they could have found alternative to these young people. So a lot of these goals, these aspirations that these young people had to migrating to Europe were, were not met. And so, you know, these researchers were saying that you know the recommendation they made to the foundations was that from the start of it, speak to the to the children and young people. Don't transport these models, these guidelines that have been developed in other contexts. And I just, I mean, I just kind of want to end there. That you know, are the decisions we make have real life consequences of children and young people. And if we don't take this concerted view of putting children young people, families, and communities at the center of decision-making. We're gonna replicate the cycle over and over and over again. And what we saw in Germany, we'll see again in six months from now, a year from now, and in countless other places.
3: Oh, thank you, Ghazal. I really, really appreciate it. And thank you so much for um, some, in, the prescient patient perspective on um, on this challenge. Um, I am wanting to give our panelists all the time uh, that they have and that they need today. So one thing we're going to ask is that if you do have questions, um, we can actually compile them all um, and then answer them uh, either individually or answer them after um, Excuse me, after the session is done. So acknowledging that we will end on the hour. If you do have questions, please do put them in the chat and we'll be able to answer them after our sessions um, individually, um, either by email or in another way. With that said, I will then turn over to our last uh, speaker, uh, Mike Wessels. Thank you for joining us today and I really appreciate I'll let you take it away.
7: Thank you, Nina. And I, I wanted to thank uh, Zanelli, uh, Beatrice, and Gazal for outlining what I think are, are really badly needed insights into the w- way the current system privileges outsiders and uh, pulls power away from local people. Um, Nina, you started with the question of, is this just nice to do or is this something that's absolutely crucial to do? I wanted to identify the way in which the child protection field actively causes harm on a scale which has never been measured before. We've never attempted to look at it. And it has to do with the top-down approach. So what happens when we vest the power in uh, outside experts and international NGOs? Well, as Gasol says, it continues uh, structures of uh, uh, coloniality Um, I would argue that when we impose our own ideas about uh, which issue is most important to address, how to address it, and uh, we infantilize local people, we impose our own ideas. And in that process, we create dependency. So this is not something that uh, just misses an opportunity. This is an approach that actively robs people of their agency, strips them of the power of their own indigenous knowledge, and makes them dependency on outsiders who are not going to be there. And in the field of child protection, and I'm as guilty as anyone else who works on child protection, we are nowhere with regard to sustainability. I've challenged myself repeatedly to find programs that and approaches that are sustainable. And there is, at best, a handful. And those handful are all community-driven. They put the power in the hands of local people. Um, So what I want to try to argue, uh, like uh, uh, the other panelists have, is that we need to make an historic and transformational shift. It is not a small shift in the way we work. It begins with humility and cultural humility. We have to ask ourselves, why is it that we think we know better than local people uh, what's best for their children? How would we feel if outsiders came in in the aftermath of a horrible storm and started lecturing us uh, about how to raise our children? Do we uh, listen? And I think we've heard repeatedly that we don't. And I would like to recommend an alternate approach that uh, picks up on uh, what Zanelli and others have said. Start with a process of deep listening, run it for a period of at least a couple of months. I like to use rapid ethnography because it's non judgmental. It's not done by people like me uh, who are outsiders, but by people who are either uh, from the local area and who really understand the local. Sociohistoric historic context, the political and economic uh, situation and who know the language and who can really generate high levels of trust. And it begins not with technical language, it begins with putting ourselves in the shoes of in the role of being a student, being appreciative of the fact that it's what communities and families have done over the centuries. They do the heavy lifting to promote children's well-being. Why don't we start by learning from them about their context? What the key, uh, who are children? What are the key harms to children? What are the things that communities already do to support children? And then what could be done to help strengthen those supports? And uh, so after we do the ethnographic learning, we uh, feed it back respectfully and we ask two things did we hear you correctly? And then, secondly, uh, we create a a, a reflective space. And into that reflective space, community people always leap forward. And they ask, what are we gonna do about these problems? These are our children. And that is really an important piece of it because when local people take ownership, they take responsibility for ensuring that their children are well. They don't view it as a UNICEF or a Save the Children or an outsider project. They view it as their process for improving their children's lives. So in that moment, outsiders, I would argue, have an important role to play as accompanyers as people who walk with, learn with, learn from, engage in co-learning with local people, document what they're doing, also document their struggles, which are very real, um, document how they encounter various problems and how they address them, but above all, take a community-driven approach. And I think that that means that local people decide what is the key child protection issue to be addressed? How are we going to address it? What is the quote action to be taken by the community or the intervention? Who is going to implement it and how? It's for the community people. And it's not for the elites, it's for girls, it's for boys. It's for parents, women, and men. It's for the marginalized. It's for the people with disabilities who are usually left out. The very careful attention has to be given to making this a highly inclusive endeavor that does not replicate existing uh, structures uh, of power. And when, when it's done in this way and when communities themselves monitor and evaluate their progress and problem solve on what adjustments need to be made. What we see in places like Sierra Leone, Kenya, uh, India, is higher levels of effectiveness, deep community ownership, willingness to make systems work uh, without large amounts of money because they build on local resources. They're culturally relevant. They fit the local context. And they run on the caring and the... Uh, internally guided motivation uh, and the brilliance of local actors. And interestingly, they move young people, girls and boys, into a position of leadership, not in terms of formal community leadership, but being influencers. Uh, Communities begin to see that they don't really understand the lived experience and situation of girls and boys. They respect the young people as they define their problems and as they begin to take steps to address them. It repositions them from being infants and young people who are to be seen and not heard to being influentials who are highly respected and valued uh, resources. And when we do this, we get real leverage on prevention and sustainability. And I would argue that in the long run, Uh, Even though we've done a a stronger job on response than on prevention, it is our ethical obligation to prevent harms to children before they happen. And the way that happens is through collective resilience, collective community-led action and uh, real ownership and sustainability. So I'll stop there and I look forward to our dialogue. Thanks very much.
3: Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Michael. And, and I really do feel like um, we are moving forward on a journey of understanding. Um, what I really want to appreciate are the panelists who today have given us the sort of perspective about what, how critical these things and these power shifts, this idea of shifting um, uh, the perceptions uh, the, of what we do and how we do it. All these things are absolutely critical to children's outcomes um, and youth outcomes and long-term systemic outcomes. Um, We do not have time for questions. Oh my gosh, but we made it in time. So what we would love to do is actually, please put your questions in the chat and we absolutely 100% will um, either be addressing them in uh, the the next um, pieces of our series or, um, and, or we can address them directly uh, via email as we follow up with all of you. We have another five weeks of engaging and questions. So I just want to say again, a big thank you for all of you uh, for leaning into this conversation. Um, Thank you for being here. And thank you to our speakers who really shared in absolute honesty, um, how important uh, this challenge is for child and youth outcomes. We could not be more grateful. Thank you.